You're listening to Sherd's podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. painted trees as by some special divining instinct of their essential qualities. He understood them. He knew why in an oak forest, for instance, each individual was utterly distinct from its fellows, and why no two beeches in the world were alike. People asked him down to paint a favourite lime or silver birch, for he caught the individuality of a tree as some catch the individuality of a horse. How he managed it was something of a puzzle, for he never had painting lessons, his drawing was often wildly inaccurate, and while his perception of a tree personality was true and vivid, his rendering of it might almost approach the ludicrous. Yet the character and personality of that particular tree stood there alive beneath his brush, shining, frowning, dreaming as the case might be, friendly or hostile, good or evil. It emerged. That was the opening paragraph of Algernon Blackwood's The Man Whom the Trees Loved, which was published in 1912 in his collection Pan's Garden. The story concerns the growing distance between David and Sophia Bittersey, a married couple living on the edge of the New Forest. As David becomes increasingly obsessed with the inner life of the trees, under the influence of the bohemian painter Sanderson, the marriage that had held the couple together begins to weaken, and a stronger, more malevolent force begins to take its place. The Man Whom the Trees Loved is a dark and sombre story of great emotional and psychological depth. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of one of Blackwood's most curious tales. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to episode five of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, good, good, good. Uh, feeling a bit cold in this wintry evening, but it seems very appropriate for the story we're going to be looking at. I'm in a sort of superheated room, so uh, I feel protected, <laughs> protected from the elements. The building has decided suddenly to put the heating on, so pretty toasty uh, in front of an open fire reading the times by any chance <laughs> got my pipe all ready to go <laughs> cheroot cigarette hanging out of your mouth <laughs> uh so we're talking about algernon blackwood's the man whom the trees loved which was published in his collection pan's garden in 1912 yeah how did you feel about this one rob did you enjoy reading this one i th- i think i did in the end yeah i found it a strangely difficult read i just found until the very end it didn't quite grab me as i was reading it i kept getting distracted and and things pulled me away from it uh i don't know if it was you know other things i had going on or the time of year or uh, or whether it was just something and by the end I, I i really did enjoy it a lot but how did you feel about it oh well i was kind of ready to love this story because i i've already warmed to algernon blackwood when i read the willows you know encountered him through that that story first like most people i recall reading that one in in a single sitting you know staying up really late into the night to finish it and i was just so impressed with it i don't think i know any other story that manages to sustain that level of menace and horror you haven't read that one have you rob no no i must admit this is actually the first bit of his fiction that i've read well i I highly recommend that one it's it's a really really disturbing tale actually kind of deeply distressing (laughs) but i was immediately won over by blackwood at that point and i was just expected to like this but reading it didn't let me down at all i enjoyed it tremendously and i mean these two stories are similar in some ways they have some of the same themes you know this idea of the sublime power of the natural world and these feelings of awe and disquiet 
and I suppose more particularly the sense of something malevolent that exists just outside the realm of our accustomed understanding of the world and that some subtle shift in perception or your habits of mind might cause a kind of rupture and let it in. So there are similarities, but on the whole, I I found this story much more meditative. It's just as beautifully written, but it's certainly a quieter story. And it's also touched with tragedy in a way that the willows isn't you know at the heart of the story is this crumbling marriage and i I think that really changes the tenor of the story and makes it really melancholic did you find it a melancholic one rob yeah absolutely absolutely and i think that maybe that's part of what made it difficult perhaps you could even sit down and read it in a single sitting and that for me might have worked better but yeah the the pace is really interesting it, it is very slow and it kind of ebbs away and yeah it's it's incredibly sad i thought especially at the end there's a real melancholy that obviously runs throughout the story the way the story ends and it doesn't really come to a, a climax it just slowly slips away which i found incredibly interesting and, and quite satisfying definitely So, Rob, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, so he's born in 1869 uh, in London, uh, south-east London, really, really not very far from where I'm sitting right now. And he's brought up by a father who's very religious, you know, seems quite constrained upbringing. And he travels a lot. He lives in Canada where... Apparently he works as a dairy farmer, also operating a hotel, and then moves to New York where he works as a newspaper reporter and apparently a bartender, a model, a journalist for the New York Times, private secretary, businessman and violin teacher. So I think we're dealing with another man of many talents, as seemingly a lot of the authors we've looked at over this series so far have had various other vocations. But then, of course, he's a writer and he... Yeah, writes essays and stories for various periodicals. And then he actually publishes the the first story only in his 30s. And then he's incredibly, incredibly prolific. Writes, I don't know if it's actually hundreds, but it certainly looks like hundreds of stories. And yeah, there's a, obviously a focus on the supernatural. I don't know if there's like an actual link with theosophy, but certainly there's a occultism, elements of Buddhism and... He was a member of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So, yeah, very much part of that alternative. I don't know whether this is influenced by his, his father's strict religious upbringing. I imagine it's a sort of reaction against it somehow. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it seems like a form of escape into different modes of spirit, spiritual thought. Yeah, completely into into a certain mysticism, which is very of its time, but it certainly seems uh, he was very popular as a writer in his time and, and continuing reading this story it certainly feels to me anyway very off its time but very successful as part of that success he has also like a tv and radio career where he reads his stories and then some of them are also adapted for the screen and then he yeah he dies in in 1950 you mentioned those those readings rob um and you can actually find some of them they've been put on youtube by the the bfi i thought perhaps it might be quite nice to include a little clip of uh, algernon blackwood reading from from one of his stories as she lay down on the bed it was a rather high bed a little difficult to climb up onto but there she lay quietly thinking things over and i've had more of a shock than i realized she knew that by now but she was in normal control of her faculties and as she lay there just thinking over things she heard a voice. The voice said very quietly, lock your door. Give her a jump, you know, but uh, she had locked her door. There's nobody in the room. She couldn't understand it, but she got up, sat the room again, also the cupboard and under the bed. There was nowhere much to look. She couldn't understand it quite. And then she got help, because she saw the lower sash of the window was open noise outside of course she walked out the window looked out into the dark night uh, very quiet no wind nothing moving not a sound lock your door she lay down again of course she said to herself i must have uh, spoken those words myself i was thinking about it. it's always in my mind i'd lock your door and i no doubt i just said it to myself yes 
And there she composed herself and thought, if I can get to sleep, all the better. There she lay. Lock your door! It was so loud and so authoritative that she didn't hesitate an instant. She didn't argue or think or just slithered off that bed like a two-year-old. Reached the door, turned the key. He, he also seems to be quite fashionable these days. As a sort of cult author, he seems to be regaining a degree of popularity that perhaps dropped out in the second half of the 20th century. And there's even a Penguin Classics edition of some of his stories now. He does seem to be, be a writer that resonates with people, that continues to resonate with people. So I thought it might be useful to outline the characters a little bit so that we know where we are. We have David Bittersey, who appears to have once been a forest warden of some kind, and we know that he spent some time in India and that his work caused him to spend extended periods in jungle forests, during which time he seems to have developed a really strong affinity with nature and particularly with trees. Now he's returned to England and settled in the new forest in a house with his wife, Sophia. But this heightened perception of some kind of deeper life within nature seems to have lingered with him. And his wife was with him in India, and while his job called him out to the forest, she would remain at home, dreading all manner of evils that might befall him, as Blackwood says. And he goes on to write that... This, of course, explained her instinctive opposition to the passion for woods that still influenced and clung to him. It was the natural survival of those anxious days of waiting in solitude for his safe return. And his wife, Sophia, is the daughter of an evangelical clergyman, and she's extremely pious and somewhat narrow-minded, not quite capable or perhaps unwilling to share her husband's elevated and decidedly animist view of the world she seems rather happier following the prescribed and conservative interpretation of higher things and she frequently quotes the bible in moments of personal crisis i think it might be interesting to just go back to that to the biography for a moment rob because we know that he was raised in an extremely religious household and he was also sent to attend a school in Germany which was run by the Moravian Brotherhood. And as I understand it, the Moravian Church places a huge emphasis on the word of the Bible and believes it to be the primary means of understanding God. I don't know about you, but I, I found a very strong distaste for this this style of spirituality depicted with Sophia. Did you feel the same? Certainly at the beginning of the book, she almost feels like a caricature and. It feels like his uh, his dislike of this particular form of Christianity almost slightly impairs his ability to create a rounded character. Uh, mm. This is my feeling at the beginning that she almost feels at this point, and I think this changes a lot throughout the book. But at this early stage of the book, she feels like a stand-in for a lot of things rather than necessarily a character in her own right. Do you think that's fair to say? She even seems like a, a stand-in at times for her gender and particularly to, towards the beginning of the, the story, there's some real moments of sort of outright misogyny. I don't know if you uh, would yeah, agree yeah, with yeah, me, yeah. Bob. I'm thinking of one particular point when uh, Blackwood writes about the way David Bittersey views his wife. And he says, It was her one fault in his eyes, this religious mania carried over from her upbringing, and it did no serious harm. Great emotion could shake it sometimes out of her, she clung to it because her father taught it her, and not because she had thought it out for herself. Indeed, like many women, she never really thought at all, but merely reflected the image of others' thinking, which she had learned to see. Did you find that kind of inhibiting in your reading, Rob? I must admit, I feel it's, it's for me personally, like a, a bit of a problem with reading some of this kind of weird fiction as it's become quite fashionable. I find it really hard to overlook... And the politics, I mean, this is 1912, there's a lot more enlightened stuff going on at the time, but there's also probably worse than this. I think there's far worse things in, in other writers. We'll talk about it later, but I found actually as the book went on, we really see the entire story through her eyes. Yeah. And the sense of loss, this really, really affecting, I think, sense of loss that comes through the book, treats her 
very sympathetically in a way that actually she re- she really is a very well-rounded character by the end and, and her emotional life is kind of central to the entire story. From reading the beginning of the story, you would in no way expect Sophia to become almost a central character of the tale. She seems to be the one in the end for whom Blackwood has the most sympathy, if not empathy. I do find it quite a kind of moving depiction by the end of the story and it's where a lot of that melancholy comes from but it it just struck me as strange that she is a victim essentially of her inability to open her mind to something larger and she's kind of constrained by this deeply ingrained religious upbringing but I find it odd that she should be described in such narrow-minded terms in in Blackwood's part when that is supposedly her own main failing. It's slightly difficult to resist the temptation to project biographical reasons for that. We know that Blackwood didn't marry. You know, whether that kind of reflects his attitude to women or not, we, we don't really know. And and how much of this is kind of like contemporary attitudes. In a way, it could be Blackwood kind of building up her position within this marriage and that, you know, it's demonstrating that her husband is very much the dominant partner is his own whims that make a victim of her because it is placing this view of women in uh, in the husband's voice you know but there did seem to be something casual about it that might suggest that blackwood shared similar views there's also this really interesting other character in the story and that's the artist sanderson whom i really really liked personally i, I found him sort of really reminiscent of one of those characters that you find in Russian, you know, 19th century Russian novels, you know, those dangerous young men who arrive in the countryside straight out of the universities, full of all manner of wild new ideas, and they sort of threaten the peaceful conservatism of the day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking of those figures like um, Bazarov from Turgenev's Fathers and Sons. Do you, you know that? book don't you Rob yeah 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 or you know Nikolai Stavrogin from uh, The Devils by Dostoevsky these kind of figures with disheveled hair and open shirt collars and wild flashing eyes who exude moral corruption they're always so much fun to read about you know there are all sorts of funny descriptions of of Sophia's um, views towards him that he's just not very nicely dressed or doesn't cut his hair properly and there's something a bit too bohemian about him for her. Is there something? Did I imagine it? Is there something about him, him sort of not wearing a dress shirt to dinner or something like this? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't remember exactly, but there's definitely something about the way he dresses. You can imagine he dresses a bit too foppishly or rakishly, you know. <laughs> and it's hard, I suppose, in a way, to imagine what that kind of thing would have meant at the time. It reminds me slightly. There's um, a bit in the interpretation of Freud's interpretation of dreams where he talks about a, a dream that a patient has had about being naked in public, which is, you know, I guess like a, a fairly classic dream. Mm. But then goes on to explain what naked meant, and it's something. You know, he's talking in in kind of broad terms about this common dream, and he then goes on to say, you know, for example, a man being seen without a tie in the street. Or a soldier being caught without his sword. Mm. uh, These things would have been the source of enormous anxiety, seemingly. And so I suppose to be on the other side, to be the person seeing someone at ease in that situation might have been um, something else altogether. Oh, that's interesting. Certain things like this seem not to be a matter of general propriety, but quite localised propriety somehow. You know, at the moment I'm reading a biography of Mary Shelley and there are lots of descriptions of Percy Shelley and the fact that he never wore a hat and that sometimes his shirt collar would be unbuttoned and so on. And, you know, that's a that's hundred years before this and it's causing a degree of scandal then. Yeah. I can't imagine that in just in general, that in general terms by 19... 19- 12 those things would be considered particularly shocking i think it seems to be something about mrs bittersy about sophia yeah that's very true that's very true yeah absolutely uh and it's funny you mentioned nakedness because there is that passage where sanderson describes one of the trees as as naked is that right and it says that she didn't like his his choice of adjective yeah absolutely so even the idea of a tree being naked is somehow um, too rude for finer sensibilities and then when the trees regard her later on in the story it says that uh, she feels quite naked ah uh, yeah so that kind of gets reversed upon her but one thing we should say about sanderson 
is that he's a painter whose only subject of interest seems to be trees. And he he can't really paint anything else, but is able to capture the individual essence of particular trees and reproduce it in what seem to be sort of impressionistic-style paintings. And the Bittersees come into contact with him when uh, Mr. Bittersee has his beloved Lebanese cedar that stands on the lawn in front of the house like an outpost painted and then he he's so kind of moved by sanderson's ability to capture this the the personality of this tree that he wants to get to know him much better and and this relationship between sanderson and mr bittersee forms the kind of catalyst for mr bittersee's increasingly engrossing interest in the inner life of trees but i think you had some quite interesting thoughts about that relationship between mr bittersee and and sanderson yeah, well, when uh, so when I spoke about the book uh, when I was sort of halfway through or so, it really seemed to me very much like a homosexual relationship or this kind of unconscious or undercover homosexuality. Having now finished the book, I'm I'm not convinced that that is actually what's going on. But there is something very interesting, I think, in context of what we were talking about about the place of women, especially in the early part of the book that there's some kind of shared knowledge between men. You know, it seems quite important that it is between the two men and the woman is kind of on the outside, unable seemingly to, to understand this. And perhaps that fits in with a certain public school attitude. But yeah, certain certain camaraderie that exists between men, if, if not actually sexual. It's kind of hinted at, but it's very hard to work out if it's something that at the time wouldn't have been picked up on or wouldn't have been assumed to be that because male friendship and relationships were thought of in a different way. But I do think that that hits at something unconscious, some some kind of illicit desire which is actually going on beneath the surface. But they certainly share something larger. That idea of homosexuality, or at least some suggestion of uh, eroticism between the two of them, did occur to me. I mean, it's an interesting thought. There's a particular moment that struck me when Sophia leaves the two men alone for a moment, and, and Blackwood writes, At the moment the door closed behind her, Sanderson began again, though now in quite a different tone. Mr. Bittersee sat up in his chair. The two men obviously resumed the conversation, the real conversation, interrupted beneath the cedar, and left aside the sham one, which was so much dust merely thrown in the old lady's eyes. So there is a real idea of a a secret code shared between these two men, and one actually that, that seems to hinge upon love. In this case, the love that Sanderson claims the trees harbour for Mr. Bittersea. You know, he talks of the forest having a sort of desire for Mr. Bittersea or at least a friendly, positive attitude because they know that he sort of has cared for them as a, as a kind of collective species through his work as a forest warden. And there's also, of course, this central motif of the husband developing a kind of love that is utterly alien to his wife and one that she just can't be involved in. And there's a point there when it seems, yeah, very much that she, she sees something unnatural in their, in their relationship. There's a point where it says, uh, Truth to tell, the way the younger man engrossed the older, keeping him out for hours in the forest, talking on the lawn in the blazing sun, and in the evenings when the damp of dusk came creeping out from the surrounding woods, all regardless of his age and usual habits, was not quite to her taste. And something about the the adjectives, the kind of the the damp of dusk and the uh, I don't know, keeping him out for all hours. Something hints possibly, you know, the 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 younger man engrossing the older. There just seems seems something about that relationship that she's not too happy with or feels very uncomfortable with, and it seems something about it being unnatural or ungodly. The only reason I wouldn't kind of immediately jump to that conclusion it has to do with the themes that are sort of shared by other stories by Blackwood that that I've read you know these ideas of deep communion with nature and animism and so on they genuinely seem to have been a huge preoccupation for him and you know maybe this is speculative but it's possible that these kinds of views alienated some of the people around him I don't know yeah no I think I think you're absolutely right I think what I'm reading into it as her fear of homosexuality is in fact 
exactly as you say, that it's a fear of the same register. <laughs> Not that I hold this fear, but uh, something unnatural or, you know, the, the the same fear that someone deeply religious may have of homosexuality, that it is perhaps unnatural and ungodly, is the same fear as their relationship with nature, or specifically the trees. I think it was just that moment in the book I really felt like there was it was charged with some strange eroticism and uh, a certain desire. Yeah, there's there's something there. I mean, as to Blackwood's sexuality, I haven't been able to really determine definitively whether or not he was interested in men there seems to be a lot of speculation on the on the topic but did you say that he didn't marry rob is that right he didn't marry yeah he was described as a loner by his friends but uh good fun something like that uh, <laughs> which i mean could be like know, me could be, yeah <laughs> could be could be easily read you know either either way i mean I, perhaps we'll never never know but yeah there's definitely a sense some kind of illicit secret shared but the fact that it's between two men is is perhaps incidental, and I think isn't isn't borne out by the rest of the story. I think you're absolutely right that there does seem to be. This is very. It, this isn't a, a metaphor or allegory for anything else no. necessarily. Um, it does seem to genuinely be very much about uh, attitude towards nature. Yeah, I don't think it stands in for something else. It, I think, it's a really important thing for Blackwood himself. This, this sort of nature wor- worship. There followed a summer of great violence and beauty. Of beauty because the refreshing rains at night prolonged the glory of the spring and spread it all across July, keeping the foliage young and sweet. Of violence because the winds that tore about the south of England brushed the whole country into dancing movement. They swept the woods magnificently and kept them roaring with a perpetual grand voice. Their deepest notes seemed never to leave the sky. They sang and shouted, and torn leaves raced and fluttered through the air long before their usually appointed time. Many a tree, after days of this roaring and dancing, fell exhausted to the ground. The cedar on the lawn gave up two limbs that fell upon successive days, at the same hour too, just before dusk. The wind often makes its most boisterous effort at that time, before it drops with the sun, and these two huge branches lay in dark ruin covering half the lawn. They spread across it towards the house. They left an ugly gaping space upon the tree, so that the Lebanon looked unfinished, half destroyed, a monster shorn of its old-time comeliness and splendour. Far more of the forest was now visible than before, It peered through the breach of the broken defences. They could see from the windows of the house now, especially from the drawing room and the bedroom windows, straight out into the glades and depths beyond. I was still quite interested in in how Blackwood writes in these kind of strangely unconscious thread that that kind of this this tumult that's going on under the surface of both david and uh, sophia so for for david with with sanson's visit his his demeanor and his attitude seems to change so we learn that he begins to talk in his sleep which sort of seems like a classic door through to the unconscious and there seems to be an awful lot of talk of of the night and things that happen at night which seems to me a strange underside to the to the day things that happen in sleep and things that happen in the night there's a strange excitement which for me really feels like this awakened desire that sanderson sets in motion and continues after he leaves it writes that uh, the joy of a strange internal excitement made his heart beat faster he knew not what it was he knew only perhaps whence it came and there's um you know words like like trembling to describe this this kind of state of mind, this this overexcited state of mind. This is something perhaps worth picking up again a bit later. But one thing I found really fascinating as the story moves on is how it moves from this initial overexcited, this strange tension, to then like a meditative calm that he gets from exactly the same source as it moves further and further away from his wife and further into the forest or into the embrace of the forest. He becomes, in a way, less and less like a man and more like a, a tree, doesn't he? She she almost sees him in those terms. 
and uh, he stops really even speaking. There are moments when she almost mistakes him for a tree, things like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially towards the end. And this idea of, yeah, like a, a waking sleep, that he's the, the tone of a somnambulist, this kind of thing, where he seems to, yeah, becoming vegetative, I suppose, uh, to a certain extent. But it, then it's interesting that as that happens to her husband, as she starts to see him, him in, in these more tree-like terms, you know, there's this moment where Blackwood writes, across the clearing where the sunshine lay so calm and still, she saw the figure of her husband moving among the trees, a man like a tree, walking he's become imbued with these sorts of characteristics but the language used to describe her mental processes also takes on these um, images of vegetation there's this passage referring to the trees and it says there seemed in their motionless silence there instinct with life a life moreover that breathed about her a species of terrible soft enchantment that bewitched it branched all through her climbing to the brain the forest held her with its huge and giant fascination that verb that's used there the idea of this uh, enchantment branching through her almost kind of infecting her in this sort of insidious way is really nicely done i think and then you know, there's this very common idiom used at the end of one of the chapters uh, when she's reached this great moment of despair and it describes the way that she buried her face among the sheets and blankets, shaking all over like a leaf. I don't know about you, Rob, but at that moment I I got a little shiver, you know, with the transformation of this very common and almost so common as to be cliche, the kind of idiom that you wouldn't really include in your in your writing takes on a very sinister tone all of a sudden the point at which the the story really grabbed me actually is when her mental life comes to the forefront because perhaps even far more interesting than the the slow removal of david from marital home is her breakdown and her constant questioning of her own mental processes and she becomes as obsessed with the forest as he does uh, the flip side of the same coin i suppose in as much as she becomes absolutely obsessed with its kind of evil power. But it draws her in just as much. And at points you can see her questioning whether the entire thing perhaps only exists in her mind. Blackwood doesn't make it clear, is is kind of deliberately vague in a very interesting way. He gives us the opportunity to think that the entire thing could exist in her head and, and we're seeing quite horribly in some ways someone experiencing a breakdown. As something a bit like the turn of the screw, yeah, where there's a kind of central ambiguity, and if you choose to view it in that way as as a kind of depiction of this very slow and quite horrific breakdown, it it almost becomes a much more disturbing read than the idea of the forest being truly malevolent somehow. There's a really nice passage, sort of two thirds or so through, where she's becoming increasingly concerned with with her husband's relationship with the forest, and she says to herself, "How could he possibly know such things?" And then, as she closed the front door after him, she heard the distant roaring in the forest, and then it suddenly struck her, "How could she know them too?" And then there's this strange this moment when she, yeah, she completely questions the very core of her, you know, how perhaps everything she knows is is kind of somehow disintegrating. Her husband is, in fact, just going for a walk in the forest. And it adds a real strange menace to the story, that this extra layer, because there is, you know, really quite beautiful writing about the forest and the trees, things that could, in a completely different context, be really very beautiful, very romantic, really imbued with incredible danger. But then having this extra layer of perhaps it is this kind of paranoid delusion makes it psychologically far more far more rich to read i think would you would you agree with that yeah i do it's the kind of uh, master fulcrum of the story it could be switched either way and be horrific for for very different reasons but i really like the fact that blackwood does that you always sense that he's maintaining this balancing act on the precipice between sublimity and danger he seems to want to move a story to that point and uh, sustain its energy between those two things if you think of the story in terms of a mental breakdown that's another kind of balancing act that he's 
performing, you know, ne- never quite letting the story fall upon one particular side. You know, this <laughs> this is not very learned reference, Rob, but, but um, do you know the film? Have you seen The Fly? Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, were you reminded? <laughs> were you reminded at all of the fly when as you read this? Ah, um, no. But I can I, now you say it, I can absolutely see see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. Just this this idea of um, of a kind of committed woman who, despite the fact that her well, her, in this case, her partner or, or the her, her romantic interest in the in the fly is gradually becoming less human and is kind of losing contact with the world she sort of maintains this almost domestic interest in david doesn't she you know she continues to make his meals and so on and try and go to visit him in the forest and check that he's okay but gradually it becomes clear that that perhaps in real terms and perhaps in terms of her mental health she's putting herself in a lot of danger and I, I found that sort of parallel there with the with the fly. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, it wasn't really <laughs> thought of, but it's a really good one, I think, definitely. <laughs> so I've mentioned before the Lebanese cedar that stands out on the lawn in front of the couple's house, which I think is a really significant part of the story. Mr. Bittersee speculates on how Sanderson's painting had managed to capture its essence so perfectly. And he says, I'd like to ask him how he saw so clearly that it stands there between the cottage and the forest, yet somehow more in sympathy with us than with the mass of woods behind, like a sort of go-between. That I never noticed before. I see it now through his eyes. It stands there like a sentinel, protective rather. Mrs. Bittersey will come to see this particular tree in similar terms, as a kind of guardian that keeps the menacingly dark ancient forest at bay and protects her husband from its malevolent force. But it also has a personal significance for the couple. When they're discussing the the picture again, Mr. Bittersey remarks to his wife, It reminds me of a certain day, Sophia, now long gone by. It reminds me of another tree, that Kentish lawn in the spring, birds singing in the lilacs, and someone in a muslin frock waiting patiently beneath a certain cedar. Not the one in the picture, I know, but it has made me fond of all cedars for its sake, and it reminds me that you are the same young girl still. So, in some ways, cedars in general, and later this this particular cedar on the front lawn, represent for the couple the last vestiges of their loving younger years when they weren't separated by this dark fascination that Mr. Bittersee has gradually acquired. And then when this cedar is kind of ruined later on in the story, the marriage begins to crumble at a, an even faster rate. But aside from this very personal significance, the, the cedar is, is quite rich in symbolism. So as well as being a, a guardian for the couple's love, it also has certain religious resonances so moses orders cedar bark to be used as a treatment for leprosy so it has traditionally a degree of medicinal or healing power and then solomon's temple in jerusalem is is built of cedar timber suggesting this idea again of something sacred and protective which is desecrated when the tree is is cut down and it's also mentioned in psalm 92 as a symbol of the righteous. I was looking at that psalm, and uh, the whole psalm is really rich in references to vegetation in, in general. So there are some lines that read, The wicked rise up like grass. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. I don't know you have this sense of the cedar representing things as they as they should be for Mrs. Bittersey, and when that tree is no longer there, the space is left open for the this dark ancient force to kind of take over and claim Mr. Bittersey for itself and psalm ninety two also contains references to Adam regarding and admiring the the Lord's creation on the first day of his existence, and it was interesting to me. Rob, that the forest is figured later on in the story as a kind of Eden. 
you know, at a certain point in the narrative, Mr. Bittersea has become so consumed by the idea of the forest and his deep connection with the trees that he spends most of his time outside, even in the middle of the night. And his wife is in sort of despair at the state of things. She makes one last-ditch attempt to walk through the forest in order to understand what fascinates her husband so, but the, the forest expels her. I'll just read a little passage there. It was she who stood in their way, and it was she whom they intended to remove. This was what brought the sense of abject helplessness. She stood upon the sands against an entire ocean, slowly rolling in against her. For, as all the forces of a human being combine unconsciously to eject a grain of sand that has crept beneath the skin to cause discomfort, so the entire mass of what Sanderson had called the collective consciousness of the forest strove to eject this human atom that stood across the path of its desire. Loving her husband, she had crept beneath its skin. It was her they would eject and take away. It was her they would destroy, not him. Him, whom they loved and needed, they would keep alive. They meant to take him living. She reached the house in safety, though she never remembered how she found her way. It was all made simple for her. The branches almost urged her out. But behind her, as she left the shadowed precincts, she felt as though some towering angel of the woods let fall across the threshold the flaming sword of a countless multitude of leaves that formed behind her a barrier, green, shimmering, and impassable. Into the forest she never walked again. That image of the flaming sword I thought was really interesting. It comes, of course, from Genesis at the moment when Adam and Eve are banished from paradise. Certainly the way that the tree of tree of knowledge is presented and an idea that if we assume that Blackwood himself doesn't really subscribe to the Christian idea that there was a, a fall because of this uh, taking of the tree of knowledge that perhaps he might even feel the opposite that then the tree becomes the you know it's a, a symbol becomes something very different and so the I guess the the story of Eden gets turned on its head perhaps somewhat that actually the the knowledge that is represented by the tree and the fruits of the tree is is something that perhaps actually should be sought out and if this is an ungodly knowledge or or somehow against religion that perhaps for him isn't isn't really a problem for me it's quite curious that this last attempt of Sophia's as she enters the forest it does represent a kind of attempt to acquire knowledge albeit of an uh, of an arcane sort but it is knowledge nevertheless you know it is an attempt to sort of understand what it is that is so fascinating for her, for her husband so i wondered if this could be a moment of perhaps of concession to her way of seeing things you know th simply that she views this this banishment in in christian terms but then that doesn't quite follow for me because i i can't imagine that she would see this forest as Edenic and in some strange way she's depicted as a victim of her own inability to understand her husband's obsession and uh, an unwillingness to open herself to the kind of knowledge that might require her to give up her conventional habits of mind so in this sense she's she's the very opposite of of Eve in this transfigured garden of eden she sort of refuses to eat of the tree of knowledge at a certain point blackwood writes of sophia she could not bring herself to show more sympathy than was necessary she felt for one thing that if she did it might lead him that's mr bittersey to speak freely and to tell her things she could not possibly bear to know and she dared not take the risk of that so it's a, a deep terror for its own sake but also an aversion to a certain kind of knowledge that causes her to to close herself off to her husband and to feel this way so i think your reading of this as a kind of reversal of that banishment is is really apt actually i was thinking uh, that this division between david and sophia between their kind of mental landscapes can be summarized quite nicely in this this little quote from William Blake. Blake wrote that the tree which moves some to tears of joy is in the eyes of others only a green thing that stands in the way. Some see nature all ridicule and deformity, and some scarce see nature at all. 
But to the eyes of the man of imagination, nature is imagination itself. I felt like that was that could almost have formed the kind of basis of this of this story. What do you think? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's a really fantastic quote. Yeah, I mean, it basically is the uh, the story in in kind of compressed version. The room shone pale in the moonlight reflected through the windows, for the blinds were up, and she saw her husband's form motionless in deep sleep. But what caught her unawares was the horrid thing that by this fact of sudden unexpected waking, she had surprised these other things in the room, beside the very bed, gathered close about him while he slept. It was their dreadful boldness, herself of no account as it were, that terrified her into screaming before she could collect her powers to prevent. She screamed before she realized what she did, a long high shriek of terror that filled the room. It made so little actual sound. For wet and shimmering presences stood grouped all around that bed. She saw their outline underneath the ceiling, the green spread bulk of them, their vague extension over the walls and furniture. They shifted to and fro, massed yet translucent, mild yet thick moving and turning within themselves to a hushed noise of multitudinous soft rustling. In their sound was something very sweet and winning that fell into her with a spell of horrible enchantment. They were so mild, each one alone, yet so terrific in their combination. Cold seized her. The sheets against her body turned to ice. Yeah, so I don't know about you, you, Rob, but I I think really broadly we can consider Algernon Blackwood's work as part of the Gothic tradition, you know, albeit a sort of later and quite singular offshoot of the tradition. You know, he's often called a writer of weird fiction, but the more I read of so-called weird fiction, the more problematic I find that term, and I'm not sure that it really describes one thing but maybe an assemblage of lots of different things that come out of various traditions but which i think can all be tied to emerging from gothic somehow i don't know what's your understanding of sort of weird fiction yeah i mean i would i would certainly agree with what you were just saying and and i find the the term a bit of a turn-off i must admit uh, really there's a lot of stuff that gets lumped in there that i i don't necessarily always enjoy and i think as we were saying in the biography, perhaps for me anyway, having read all of one story, uh, part of the kind of like this renewed interest is that I think it feels like there's an awful lot more going on in this particular story than there is in a lot of other things I've read. More than in Lovecraft, I think. And, mm. and uh, yeah, it's the, the kind of you like... You could get in trouble for the, saying something like that, Rob, you know. I know, I know. But yeah, I've, I've said it now. So <laughs> you can edit it out if you like. <laughs> I'm the one that runs um, the email account. <laughs> yeah, oh God, yeah, okay. <laughs> For me no, personally, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, it feels like there's a, there's a psychological depth. As to Sophia particularly, the, the kind of way that she actually becomes so central to it, which is... is yeah, that, that for me is, is far, far more gothic than a lot of other writers that get lumped in with this uh and you know there's other there's other quali- good qualities of, of other other writers but yeah i would absolutely agree with your categorization of it as a work of gothic fiction yeah and you know that that influence that i think we can see of uh the turn of the screw on, on this story i mean personally i think it's it's there you know the turn of the screw is very self-consciously playing with all these gothic tropes you know there are even references to Anne Radcliffe's novel The Mysteries of Adolfo being the kind of the kind of text that the governess would would read in that story and it you know obviously takes place in this this huge uh, manor house with turrets and towers and things uh, so it's really drawing on on that early gothic tradition but I was just quite interested because I got a book from uh, I got hold of a book a book from my mum called Eco Gothic it's a collection of essays 
uh, from Manchester University Press. So it's edited by Andrew Smith and William Hughes. And it actually contains an essay on Algernon, Algernon Blackwood, which I, I read and, and personally didn't find illuminating at all. <laughs> but there's another essay in it by Lisa Kroger called Eco-Criticism and the 18th century Gothic novel, which gives an interesting account of depictions of nature in early Gothic text, and particularly the works of Anne, Anne Radcliffe. She quotes this passage from The Mysteries of Adolfo, in which Emily is told she has to leave her, her childhood home, and so she seeks solace in, in nature. This is a quote from, from that novel. She silently passed into the garden, and hastening towards the distant groves was glad to breathe once more the air of liberty and to sigh unobserved. The deep repose of the scene, the grandeur of the wide horizon, soothed and gradually elevated her to that sublime complacency which renders the vexations of this world so insignificant and mean in our eyes that we wonder they have had the power for a moment to disturb her. And Kroger goes on to comment upon this and writes that the solitude nature provides is dependent upon one thing, the, the absence of civilization. By placing nature and civilization in, in binary opposition to each other, Radcliffe opens an interesting thesis on the relationship between the city and the country. In Radcliffe's estimation, the city is far removed from nature, and therefore the urban corrupts. The forest, on the other hand, has only one law, that of God. I thought Blackwood's story here was a really interesting reversal of that of that paradigm. You know, in, in many traditional Gothic novels, it's the internal space, you know, the castle or the ancient manor house that forms the threat and nature becomes a place of, of release. You know, another example might be Frankenstein, which I've, I've recently reread, you know, this, this long passage where Victor Frankenstein returns to the the mountains of his native Switzerland and is sort of cleansed in this in this huge storm, sort of recovering after having created the, the creature. But yeah, Blackwood re- reverses this and makes the forest, the, the external space, not a place where one has any liberty, but precisely the place where one is scrutinized and observed by obscure eyes. You know, one of the most powerful scenes in this, the story, Mrs. Bittersey, Sophia, realizes that the forest is physically able to see her. Blackwood writes of the trees, they had turned in her direction. That was it. They saw her. Interestingly, it's the domestic space which is Sophia's only comfort. You know, I talked before about how she continues to prepare her husband's meals even as he spends all day outdoors. There's also this interesting disjunction between the the natural and the man-made. Quite early on in the story, it describes how David is looking at the, the forest. He describes it this way. He saw the great encircling mass of gloom that was the forest fringing their little lawn. It pressed up closer in the darkness. The prim garden with its formal beds of flowers seemed an impertinence almost. Some little coloured insect that sought to settle on a sleeping monster. Some gaudy fly that danced impudently down the edge of a great river that could engulf it with a toss of its smallest wave. That forest with its thousand years of growth and its deep spreading being was some such slumbering monster, yes. Their cottage and garden stood too near its running lip. I think running throughout the story is this sense of impertinence of the man-made. Their cottages been built in a place where perhaps it doesn't belong and the forest aims perhaps to restore its ancient dominion over the place and to eject those who don't sympathize with it you know perhaps that kind of reflects some of the anxieties of a of a highly kind of industrialized society at, at this point and certainly it's it's interesting to find this idea of the forest which i guess is from from fairy tales and folk tales such a a place where where things can happen the evil unknown but this is largely because of its capacity to hide or, or veil or, or shroud in some way and that's ob- obviously not what's going on here it's the forest itself that's the problem it's not that there's something half hidden behind a he uh, behind a tree trunk it is exactly as you say that the um 
you know, the, the multitude of eyes that the trees have, the fact that it can see from all angles and the, the trees themselves can can move and create pathways but also block other pathways and, you know, welcome or eject you into their space is, yeah, really, really interesting that it's that natural world itself and not, not for the properties or for what could happen there or, or um, yeah, what could be concealed. It's never entirely clear whether it's benevolent or evil. It's it's kind of beyond that duality, I suppose. There's a really interesting part of the story where, where it almost goes into some detail about the morality of the of the forest. Do you recall that? Yeah. So yeah, it just makes me think of this of this particular passage when yeah, I guess uh, Sophia's very Christian duality is being challenged by her experiences in the forest. And Blackwood writes, Hitherto she had divided the beyond world into two sharp halves, spirits good or spirits evil. But thoughts came to her now, on soft and very tentative feet, like the footsteps of the gods which are on wool. But besides these definite classes, there might be other powers as well, belonging definitely to neither one nor other. Her thoughts stopped dead at that, but the big idea found lodgment in her little mind, and, owing to the largeness of her heart, remained there unejected. It even brought a certain solace with it. And so, yeah, I mean, if we ignore the, uh, the kind of, like, casual misogyny of her little mind and the large heart, but he does seem to suggest that... And this is something that seems to be, like, a sort of like slightly understated part, thread that moves through, is, is a certain awakening of Sophia certain moving away she she comes to terms whether it's for her own sanity or whether it's because she really believes it but she she comes to terms with uh, some kind of sentience or or life whatever it may be in the forest and and tries to reconcile it with her christian beliefs but yeah part of that as this passage suggests is is a moving away from the strict duality of of good and evil and the fact that yeah the morality that that could bring with it and then as you say what what exactly is the morality of the forest it doesn't seem to have one you know when blackwood writes this passage about sophia realizing that jealousy is not confined to the human and animal world alone but runs through all creation and she realizes that the vegetable kingdom knew it too you know she's thinking of the way that her husband is being kind of subsumed by the forest and she's being rejected but she goes on in her thoughts to say that in in humans of course jealousy was consciously directed in animals it acted with frank instinctiveness but in trees this jealousy rose in some blind tide of impersonal and unconscious wrath that would sweep opposition from its path as the wind sweeps powdered snow from the surface of the ice i find the sort of this description of what this power is that is kind of collectively gathered by the trees fascinating you know it's a very indeterminate thing it's some kind of primeval life force or energy but not exactly like a deity and it is a curious thing that seems neither malevolent nor benevolent but the idea that it could have jealousy suggests that it's it's not entirely indifferent either it certainly seems to have intention and, and it even quite sophisticated that it realises that it doesn't need to physically destroy her, but it needs to mentally you know, incapacitate her. And that's all it needs to be able to get what it wants. And so it suggests quite a yeah, sophisticated thought process and um, ability to get what it wants. And yeah, even the very idea of, of having a, a want or a, or a desire suggests something more than, what was it that he says, the blind, blind wrath... <laughs> Yeah, blind tide of impersonal and unconscious wrath. It's a really nice uh, passage, I think. It's quite beautifully written, this book, isn't it? Don't yeah, you yeah, 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 no, absolutely. It's definitely. very elegant. The psychological aspect of it, as it grew in importance, was something that I found really, really interesting. And so, as we've already discussed, I, I don't think this is a, a metaphorical book, but if can kind of read something into it that perhaps wasn't necessarily intended. For me, what made this book kind of moved it beyond being kind of like very everyday and, and moved it into something actually slightly more spectacular was quite how powerfully it functioned as a portrait of loss. And if 
and it is a big if. Uh, but if we can see part of Blackwood's uh, thinking about nature, about this kind of like this other world that exists beyond human sentience as being informed by uh, Buddhism, which I think it is. He writes about reincarnation. And so there, for me, is something about death and loss going on here, which which is really, really interesting. And this idea of, of a return or a, a becoming vegetable, or becoming vegetative and re-entering the, the vegetable kingdom, as he repeatedly writes, for me could could literally be that, could be read in one sense as death. There's a, a a very for me very beautiful passage. Uh, Sophia describes David returning from the uh, from the woods one night, and it says that he brought in with him an odor of the earth and forest that seemed to choke her and make it difficult to breathe. For me, that start I don't know as all these strange ideas of being of kind of being buried and buried alive, and then um, later on there's this really intense passage where she talks about the trees in in kind of the same way and it it says uh, through the darkness that stretched behind the power of the trees came close and caught her twining about her feet and arms climbing to his very lips uh, climbing to her very lips she woke at night finding it difficult to breathe there seemed wet leaves pressing against her mouth and soft green tendrils clinging to her neck her feet were heavy half rooted as it were in deep thick earth Huge creepers stretched along the whole of that black tunnel, feeling about her persons for a point where they might fasten well, as ivy or the giant parasites of the vegetable kingdom settle down on the trees themselves to sap their life and kill them. It kind of almost feels like there's a convergence of two timescales here, but she's imagining the decay of her own body, so something that's perhaps even like greater than a human lifespan. That passage that you just talked about when he kind of brings in the sense of the earth, you know, it it very much seems to be the kind of odour of the grave and, and things like that. I do find it really, really convincing. Because I felt that with that in place, and then this is like a, the bit that's maybe slightly more of a of a jump, but for me was was really fundamental to my enjoyment and my reading of it is that actually it suddenly becomes this incredibly poignant description of someone basically having a breakdown coming to terms with the idea of death and not of her own death but the death of David. That sense of not being able to pass into this other world you know when you when you think of that that other world as beyond the grave it makes a lot of sense. And it reminded me of something like the relatively recent Hanukkah film Amor. Something so beautiful but also terribly sad about the loss of someone you love we we kind of know in the story that they're both old or retired in some way it's never explained quite how old they are but the idea that you might lose someone to dementia or or just uh, old age but that you might see them slowly fade away and Mm. the the difficulty of, of seeing that happen and wanting to kind of like retain things it talks a lot about their the youth and and returning to youth and um, the fact that she still sees him she sees David as a young man and that the the more she sees him like that the further away he becomes and so yeah for for me I find it incredibly touching and, and really really very poignant. That's a really beautiful reading I think Rob yeah that's terrific Rob I really like that yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it, I think it was this this point at the end where he keeps talking about s- this sleep and the fact that it it changes from this incredible nervous excitement and desire and and what I actually read as you know sort of strangely blossoming homosexual desire and then m- moves to this somnambulist you know desire for sleep and and he says let me sleep again. She heard him murmur as he settled down among the clothes, slipped back into that deep delicious peace from which you called me this idea that she almost seems to be desperately trying to stop him from falling into this place which is the forest but if there's a if there's a metaphor there perhaps is is death there's even this passage towards the end through it all her husband slept peacefully as though he heard it not this is the the storm it was as she well knew the sleep of the semi-dead for he was out with all that clamoring turmoil that part of him that she had lost was there the form that slept so calmly at her side was but the shell half emptied you know reading that it does lend some credence to the to the idea that this this might not actually be complete death but the half loss of someone th- through um 
something like Alzheimer's or a condition that causes a degree of loss of mental faculties, you know? Maybe I'll just ask you traditionally, is this something you would recommend to people, Rob? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, as you say, it's, it's very elegantly written. And um, I said at the beginning that I, I struggled to get to grips with it, but I think it was more a product of circumstances rather than the book itself. And I would definitely go back and read read more of his. I'd be very interested to see if, if people read it in the same way that I did. But um, the psychological aspects of it, for me, really raised this above a lot of other things, a lot of other similar work. So, yeah, no, I definitely would. Uh, how about you? I might not recommend this one as something to start with. You know, it's quite strange that this is the first one you've read. I, I, I really think that an incredible place to, to start with, with uh, Algernon Blackwood is, is The Willows because it, it just has such terrible force that's that story but i like i really like this one as a kind of gentler companion piece to to that story so if there are blackwood fans or if there are fans of the willows that haven't read this story i would heartily recommend going on to read the man whom the trees loved and i'll be continuing to read more and more blackwood i'm sure because i I find him a really fascinating figure Uh, i love the elegance of his writing so Yes, in short, I would recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Great. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shared Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sheredspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sheredspodcast. If you like the show, please write us a review at iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Sherd's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.